big-time three powerhouses, the likes of Reese Witherspoon, Mindy Kaling, and, oh, I don't know, Oprah, are slated to be in a movie together, the response is bound to be a positive one. But when word got out about the 2018 film adaptation, A Wrinkle in Time, the buzz was at least in part related to its source material. After all, Madeline Langle's 1962 sci-fi fantasy novel was the winner of the Newbery Medal, and it's been a favorite among kids for the last few decades. A Wrinkle in Time's protagonist is 13-year-old Meg, who struggles with bullying, argues with her teachers, and desperately misses her father, a famous scientist who mysteriously disappeared a few years before the story begins. Her younger brother, Charles Wallace, an eccentric kid who took years to learn to speak but seems to be able to read the minds of the people he cares about, is her best friend. When the family is visited in the middle of a stormy night by a strange being who calls herself Mrs. Watsit, and a cool guy from school named Calvin gets involved, it's the start of the epic adventure that Meg didn't even know she needed. With Mrs. Watsit, Mrs. Who, and Mrs. Witch by their side, the kids embark on a trip through time and space to find Meg's father and to save the universe from a looming force known only as the Dark Thing. This week's guest is Anya Spector. Anya is a co-host of the Loaded Literature Podcast, which pairs alcohol and books. Fun, right? A former English major, Anya loves all kinds of storytelling, books, movies, and of course, podcasts. Follow her on Twitter at Anya M. Spector and the Loaded Literature Podcast at Loaded Lit Pod. You can also learn more about Anya's show at www.loadedliteraturepodcast.com. She's the author behind many of the blog posts there. Now buckle up, listeners, because we're about to travel to some super weird planets. Please remember to share about the show on social media if you're enjoying it. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and by searching the SSR Podcast on Facebook. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Anya. Thank you so much for joining us on SSR. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. We are talking A Wrinkle in Time. Yes. And I actually did not read this one as a kid. So this was my first time reading it. So in- this was exciting. Interesting. So why did you decide to pick this one if it wasn't something that was like nostalgic for you? I think it was actually when I was looking at the options you gave me online, I, I don't think I'd read any of them. But um, Wrinkle Time, like the movie just came out and it's one I'd always heard about. So I was most interested in that one. Have you it's one seen like it? I felt like I should have read. Yeah, totally. Have you seen the movie? I have not seen the movie yet either. I really meant to, but I'm so bad about like getting to the theater and then looking stuff up. I just feel like that's just what happens when you start getting older. <laughs> I hear you. I haven't seen the movie either. And I was a big fan of this book when I was younger. And um, when I heard that the movie was coming out, I like freaked out. I got so excited. And I ran out and I got a copy of the book. So I read it a couple of months ago before SSR was okay. even really a thing. Yeah. Which was nice because I already had the book at home. So I didn't yeah. have to buy this one. Um, so I've now reread it twice in 2018, which is kind of unique for me because usually I'm coming back to these books for the first time in like 20 years. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's also interesting because when I read it a few months ago, 
I hadn't like come back to a middle grade book in a long time. And now that I'm in this headspace of like rereading so many old yeah. books, I like have a brand new perspective on it from even a few months ago. So I'm excited to get into that more. Let's talk about your first impressions. What were those first few pages, those first few chapters like? Okay, so this is kind of weird, but for some reason, I really had it in my head that this was a originally a French language novel. Oh. I'm not sure if it was just because of the author's name, but for some reason, I was just like, oh, this is definitely translated from French. So when I started reading, I was like, this doesn't really give me a very French vibe. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> I have no idea where that came from, but yeah, I really didn't know what to expect, but I found in the first few pages, what I was really struck by was Meg is really... Um, a um, really relatable protagonist. Like I liked when they're talking about like her, like getting into like fights at school and stuff. I don't know. I liked that she was, I don't know. I liked the way they presented her to us from the very beginning. Like she seemed like a character when, if I had read this when I was a kid, I would have really related to quite a bit. And also it seemed very whimsical, which I felt throughout the whole novel that it was very whimsical. So I enjoyed that too. I love how protective Meg is of her family. That's my favorite part about her. She's mm-hmm. so close with her little brother, Charles Wallace. Mm-hmm. And so much of the action of this book kicks off because she's gotten out of bed in the middle of a storm to like go mm-hmm. check on her family to make sure they're okay, yeah. which is so sweet. And she's getting in fights with kids at school because they're like making fun yeah. of her dad, which broke my heart that kids at school would be mm-hmm. like, oh, your dad definitely ran off with another woman. Yeah. I was like, but then again, that was pretty realistic though. Cause I feel like that's definitely how kids would interpret the dad just disappearing, which I was like, oh, that's so shitty. But I was like, but also like, that's totally how like a little kid's mind would work. They would definitely think like, oh, your dad's with another woman. Yeah, especially in a small town. It seems like it's maybe like a little bit of like a wealthy suburb. And yeah. so kids have a lot to yeah. say about what's happening with these families. Mm-hmm. And with the dad thing, I really going into this, I really knew very little about it. Really, the only two things I knew going into this is um, science fiction and um, Christian themes throughout. Those are that's all I knew. So like when the kids were talking about, oh, your dad just ran off. I thought that could have been a real possibility because I really had no idea where the dad was. I was like, oh, maybe the dad did run off. Yeah. And maybe that was sort of where the Christian piece came in of like sort of like condemning the fact that he'd run off with another woman or something like that. Yeah, so I really, I knew nothing going in, so. That's kind of a cool perspective to come in with. I sort of feel like now that I've read this multiple times, because I do think I read this a bunch of times as a kid. Like, this might have been one of those books that I, like, revisited a few times within, you know, a two or three year span when I was younger, and then reading it again. I almost feel like I knew too much, and I, like, had too much to analyze ahead of time. Mm -hmm. And this is one where I feel like it's a huge advantage to come in, like, completely fresh. It was honestly like a really enjoyable experience because there was so much like, I know it's been a long time since I, I also reread the same books over and over and over again. So it was really just a nice experience to really genuinely just have no idea or even like, it's so easy to get like spoiled on stuff. Like I was watching Westworld, but I got spoilers on the accident, which sucked. But um, so yeah, this, I managed to avoid all spoilers. I had no idea what was going on. And I, it was just really nice to have that real genuine like mystery that I haven't felt in like a long time. Do you read a lot of science fiction now or did you as a kid? As a kid, I was super into science fiction and fantasy. Um, I still do like them, but I'm a lot pickier about it now. Like as a kid, like if you told me there were robots in it, that you didn't need to say anything else about it because I was going to read that. Now I'm just a lot pickier about how I choose it. I do still like it, yeah. 
it's weird because I remember this book leaning so much more toward the fantasy side of fantasy sci-fi. And I loved both genres when I was a kid. I pretty much loved like every genre when I was a kid. I read everything when I was younger. I don't read a lot of fantasy or sci-fi now. And I definitely prefer the fantasy side. And I don't remember this being so sci-fi heavy because I loved it so much. Like it didn't, it doesn't make sense to me looking back as an adult that I would have loved something that was so heavy on like time travel and kind of freaky alien creatures like it it doesn't seem like the kind of book that I would have fallen in love with but I did when I was younger and I think a lot of it had to do with the characters the characters and you know what I'll say this about the sci-fi in it too like so I said like I'm picky about the sci-fi read now I'm not super into just the whole like I feel like there's a whole lot in the genre now that's just like people just astronaut type stuff like traveling different planets or space explorer and it's always like military very militaristic Hmm. that kind of thing like war not into any of that, but I felt like the sci-fi in this, I mean, it definitely felt very sci-fi, but it also really managed to be like fantastical at the same time. It's a unique flair that it has. Yeah. And I also just think the fact that it's kids Mm -hmm. tackling these massive problems, like the stakes are so Mm -hmm. high. And I know as a kid, you love reading a book that features kids that get to be heroes and that get to like save the universe or get to save a big group of people. And that's exactly what we get here. I found um, an article in Mashable that was written earlier this year, conveniently, the 2018 movie that came out really set groundwork for like a lot of awesome think pieces to come out about The Wrinkle in Time. So thanks to all of you journalists who gave me good material to share on the (laughs) podcast today. This article in Mashable, um, the author said, as a kid, I was used to stories about kids persevering and fighting the challenges to discover the moral of being themselves. I wasn't used to reading stories where the youthful protagonists face such grave, mortal, and existential peril. So I think you're right. Like, it's definitely sci-fi, but there's more to it. Like, the questions are much bigger. And it's interesting because as an adult, it's like I'm almost focusing more on those sci-fi aspects. And as a kid, did I pick up on those, like, deeper themes almost more than I do now? Which, that seems kind of backwards. I don't know. I always felt like when I was a kid reading stuff like this, like anytime something fantastical did happen, I just was totally ready to accept it. And then like I can move on and look at other things. Whereas like now my mind's like, well, why does that happen? What's the history behind that? Why would that work? That wouldn't make sense in this world. Like I'm always picking everything apart and I'm gotten way more analytical in my old age. <laughs> I guess it, what's the saying? Seeing oh, trees it's from- from the forest? Yeah, well, I was also thinking, this is a quote from like the Santa Claus, the Christmas movie, where he's like, um, what does he say? He's like, seeing isn't believing, believing is seeing or something. It's like, yeah. as a kid, you don't really need to see something to believe it. You just need to believe it to be able to imagine yeah. it all happening in your head. And I guess that's a really good point. I hadn't thought about it that way. As an adult, it's really easy to get caught up in like whether or not you like the world, whether or not you're invested in it and as a kid you just like want what's best for the characters and you kind of like you read for the conclusion in a different way as an adult I'm like so stuck in every moment of the book as a kid it's much easier to see the big picture and I feel like it's much easier to go on like just the adventure as a kid because I I found this myself doing this was I was just trying to pick apart the story trying to figure out what the ending is I think this is probably because I also read a lot of like mystery and thriller stuff now. Okay. So I was definitely just trying to like analyze, put together clues, that kind of thing. Whereas like, I feel like when you're a kid, you don't do that as much. You're just kind of there for the ride. Yeah, I think that's very true. So speaking of kids, we're going to talk next about Charles Wallace because he is sort of the like ultimate kid. He's Mm -hmm. only five years old, four years old, five years old. He's little in this book. He's Meg's little brother. And I think 
there's a lot of really interesting things that we can talk about with Charles. Mm-hmm. And the first thing that I want to say is that it's like fascinating the way that he a- interacts with these older kids. Like he's palling around with these high schoolers for the whole book. And Calvin, Meg's pseudo boyfriend, like soon to be boyfriend, TBD, Calvin is like totally into it. He wants to be buds with Charles Wallace. Yeah, he was a really interesting character. First of all, I kept forgetting that he was only supposed to be five. Like, my mind kept, like, deleting that. Like, I kept imagining, like, ten. Yeah. And I was like, no, no, no. He's supposed to be way littler than that. Yeah, and I think that's one part, too, where it's, like, as an adult, that was really hard for me to buy into. As a kid, when you're, like, eight, nine, ten reading a book like this, you can forget that age difference. As an adult, I'm like, these 16-year-old kids are not going to be this nice to like a precocious kind of condescending five-year-old they, they definitely just treated him like he was like one of the crew which again like when I was imagining him as like a 10-year-old I was like okay I, I could see that but then I'm like no he's five but I really liked him although I kept trying to figure out like initially I thought and I guess I was kind of right because I thought something was I actually thought he might be a little bit evil, like okay. almost like a the the omen type situation because he like he had the whole thing where he was like kind of like reading minds and all that. And like I said, I didn't know anything going in, so I was like, oh, this is like bad juju. I was thinking like because then they say something else like, oh, he didn't start talking to like a year ago, and then the dad's been gone a year. So in my mind, I was like, oh my god, he did something to the dad. That's why he can start talking, or he's like possessed. But he does kind of get possessed. He does. I I think there's so many ways to interpret him, and it's so interesting that you read him that way. Mm -hmm. I read him, I was thinking maybe he, the implication could be, and again, this book was written in 1962, so it was a much different time. People were having much different conversations about kids. My first thought, just especially given descriptions like the one you just mentioned, where like he didn't really start talking until he was three or four, and then all of a sudden he was speaking in these full sentences, and he was brilliant in certain ways and then really kind of behind his classmates and others. My first thought was that maybe he like has Asperger's or he's like on the spectrum somewhere. And again, in 1962, I don't know if that's something that A, would have been identified or B, ever would have been shared in a book. You know, I'm super excited you brought that up too because once – once I uh, put to bed my theory that he was some kind of evil omen child. Evil genius, um, I, Charles Wallace. <laughs> yes. Once I put that theory to bed, like I said, I sometimes I go crazy with the theories when I'm just consuming any media. But um, I also started, like, like more like when I finished the novel and I was kind of just reflecting, I also had a thought that maybe he was on the spectrum or something, which I thought was super interesting because I agree. Like, I don't know if that would have been, like, a thing people just knew about back then. Or then I was wondering maybe if like someone in the author's family had Mm -hmm. had, she'd had experiences with children like that. But what I thought was really fascinating about his character, and if we do think of him as someone on the spectrum, as representative of that, that he was, it really wasn't treated as a bad thing. I feel like, you know, it was just treated as like, this is your, what makes you special. And I felt like that was almost just very progressive and would it was just a very good representative representation of that. I feel like it would be a good representation even now, kind of. I don't know. I don't feel like the book ever wanted to make you judge him for that or anything. That was just what made him special. I agree. And I wonder if middle grade 
books now put a finer point on autism or Asperger's. I haven't read enough newer middle mm-hmm. grader YA to know how that's handled. I would assume there's more of it because obviously it's yeah. something that's a little bit more talked about in 2018 than it was decades ago. But there's something kind of cool about the fact that there's not a name put yeah. to anything. There's no label. It's just mm-hmm. this kid who like has some different abilities, some that are like extraordinary and some that are a little bit slow to catch up to everybody else. And it doesn't really matter what that's called. There's no mm-hmm. issue with it. It doesn't constitute like a problem of his. It's just mm-hmm. something that his family is dealing with. And they're like really respectful of his strengths mm-hmm. and patient with his weaknesses. And I think yeah, you're right. That's kind of cool. Yeah. And I just felt like they weren't really treating his differences in any way different from Meg's. You know, like she, everyone thinks she's kind of immature. She gets into fights and she's really just a troubled kid, mm-hmm. which I don't want to say they treat it like he's a troubled kid, but like, they're like, oh, he has some faults. She has some faults and they both have good parts. Like that's just, you know, how people are. And then like, again, like with the dad, um, this is skipping way to the end of the book. He says something like, um, she's mad at him for not saving Charles Wallace. And he's like, you know, like, I'm sorry, I'm just a person too. Mm-hmm. So, and I, I really liked that message, you know, like, cause we all, we're all just people. So I loved it. I think that whole storyline of like Meg generally learning to accept her family members for who they are, particularly her parents was huge. And I found that there's a big pattern of that throughout Kid Lit where like in almost every book that I've read, the kid protagonist has this moment where they realize that their parent or parents mm-hmm. are not perfect, are fallible, or even like they're sad. Something as simple yeah. as like, my parent has a bad day too. Mm-hmm. And the quote that her dad says in that moment that you just mentioned, he says, my daughter, I am not a Mrs. What's it, a Mrs. Who, or a Mrs. Which. Yes, Calvin has told me everything he could. I am a human being and a very fallible one, but I agree with Calvin. We were sent here for something. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. And I think we should probably get into some of the religious symbolism at some point too. But separate from that, I I just think this is a family that understands their faults Mm -hmm. and and tries Mm -hmm. to move past them and to like own them in a really healthy way. And what you're saying about like how the characters are kind of what really makes you love this book. I really love the Murrays. I want a family like that. They are kind of almost not quite, but almost got like Weasley-ish vibes to them where they're kind of all very accepting. They're kind of all, you know, they have a little bit of kookiness about them, but they all mesh really well and they're loving and almost like an American scientist Weasleys. (laughs) I love that comparison. Mm -hmm. That's so perfect. I agree. I think this is a family that would be great on a TV show. Like you can kind of see them on this like quirk family comedy mm-hmm. I love that the mom is a scientist too and it, again like you said this book was 1962 right yeah I, I was like both parents are scientists it's not treated as anything weird I was like sure like the people in the town are kind of rude about the husband disappearing but like the mom is like totally just like she doesn't believe that at all you know so I I don't know. I just really love that too. Yeah, I think this is a great family. They really are each like individuals and they respect Mm -hmm. each other. And I would think in a family where both of the parents are scientists, Mm -hmm. there could be this pressure for everyone in the family to be like super smart and super on top of things at school. And they seem to just kind of like let each kid do their own thing. There's these twins that are like not really in the book that much. Their names are Sandy and Dennis, and they, like, I don't think they're really good at school. <laughs> like, you don't really get the sense that the parents are that concerned about their academic performance. They're yeah. not really that worried about the fact that Meg is, like, kind of an average student, even though they know she's super smart. They're yeah. just kind of, like, letting them figure out their own shit, and that's big. I think especially today when you hear about these, like, hyper-successful parents, mm-hmm. kids are pushed so hard, and this is not that at all. 
Mm-hmm. Similar to that, like the pressure to just do well in like one uniform way, like school, it's just like, and they kind of touch on this a little bit too in some of the earlier chapters where she's at school and it's just like, memorize this, do this, make sure you do it exactly this way and stuff. Yeah, that's good. Like you should, you know, you should know your timetables, you should know history, but it's not, it's not critical thinking. And I feel like they didn't really get into this, but I feel like the Murrays would be the type who value critical thinking and creativity over just like memorizing things. I remember relating to that so much, Mm. the scene where she's trying to solve math problems and she's like, do they care how you do it or do they just Mm. care that you get the right answer? Because I remember like asking my dad for help with word problems Mm -hmm. or something and he would know a strategy from when he was in school. He would teach Mm -hmm. it to me and I understand it so much more than what my teacher had taught Mm -hmm. me. But I would be like, I don't know. I don't know if I can use this method because I want to get, you want to get full credit, but it's like, where do you put the value? Do you put the value on having to get the right answer the exact right way or is about learning to do it in a way that you can replicate and actually like wrap your head around? So I think that's like a really cool theme in the book. And I, I also think that it's meant to symbolize like a bigger question about like doing things your own way and not having to conform, which is something that we see obviously as a huge theme once they get to the planet. <laughs> Camazots, I think that, is how we say it. That's kind of how I was reading it in my head. Yeah. So yeah, I would say Camazots too. <laughs> yeah. And Camazots, for those of you who have seen the trailer for the movie, which I'll include in the show notes, it's really captured in this scene that's in the trailer where all of these kids are outside of these identical houses and they're all bouncing a basketball at the yeah, same pace. Yeah, I'll include that in the show notes for anybody who hasn't seen it. They go to three planets and that's the second one. And so I think in the beginning of the story, we're hearing about like conforming in terms of being a kid that fits in at school or a kid that like does things way that she's supposed to for their teacher. And then as we get further into the book, it's like a much bigger question of fitting into this into society as a whole. Mm-hmm. It does get kind of like existential because at some point it's almost like finding where you fit in and like the whole universe grand scheme of things, which I was like, my little kid brain totally would have just like read over that because like there were evil robots earlier. So that's where my mind would have been then. But now as an adult, I'm like, oh, this is kind of existential. There's a story in The New Yorker, again, that came out earlier this year, and the author wrote, to read Langle is to enroll your brain in a yoga class for levels too advanced. <laughs> I love that. That is amazing. And I think it captures it pretty well. This is deep stuff. And you really do, whether you're thinking about like, even if you're trying to wrap your head around the science piece of it, like Mm -hmm. that's one thing that you have to master what the actual method that they're using to time travel is, testering. And then there's sort of these bigger questions about like morality and like you were saying, existentialism. Like there's so many Mm -hmm. different places that this book challenges you intellectually Mm-hmm. And it's hard to keep them all straight. But I think she did a really good job balancing it. Because like I said, I didn't read this as a kid. But I could imagine reading this as a kid and just genuinely enjoying like the story. But now as an adult, I also still genuinely enjoyed it. Not just for the story, but for those kind of messages and themes and like the philosophical elements of it. So I think just there's just a really good balance here that she really struck. That I again, I just thought it was phenomenal writing too. The writing is exquisite. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. We can't really go much further into this conversation without doing sort of a brief intro to the three Mrs. W's. Yeah. Mrs. What's-It, Mrs. Who, and Mrs. Witch, who at the beginning, we really don't know who they are. And honestly, even toward the end of the book, I like wasn't quite sure who they were. But they're these sort of like eccentric figures that show up in the first few chapters of the book that lead the children, Meg, her brother Charles Wallace, Mm -hmm. and then this new friend Calvin on -hmm. an adventure literally like through the whole universe. They were fantastic. I was kind of imagining them in my head as 
kind of the witches from Hocus Pocus. Oh, interesting. Okay. I was like, oh, oh, three strange women. Hocus Pocus. Good, good parallel, um, good parallel. I like it. I like where your head's at. Clearly, a yeah. kid raised on the same pop culture as me. <laughs> oh, yeah. I thought they were really interesting, too. Um, I think Charles Wallace, there's, like, a part where he, like, mentions that one of them is, like, a burnt-out star or she was a star. I thought they were just super fascinating. Like, they, to me, were probably probably my favorite part of it, almost, mm. just because they were such a mystery. And I like that it never quite got clearly defined, I don't know. I really like them. I love that they were women, first of all. I mean, it would have been very easy to make them men, I think, especially at this point in history. And I always come back to that. I can't help but come back to that from the perspective that I see things Mm -hmm. through. I love that there's three, like, badass women that are taking care of all of this and, like, serving as their spirit guides through this adventure. Mm -hmm. Mrs. Watsit was a star, and we learned that she essentially, like, exploded as a star because she was trying to commit a selfless act to fight what I'm going to call, in quotes with my fingers, the dark thing, which is, like, this cloud that the kids can see descending over the Earth and, like, all of these other planets. And we are told that there's all of these people figures stars apparently like fighting the dark thing and mrs what's it as a star tried to do that and then like exploded it on herself and became like a being it's hard to say because she kind of morphs throughout the book yeah they oh god was it tesser yeah they tesser which is like yeah so and they explain that because it took i had to reread this a few times tessering for those listening who are not like you know big on physics or astrophysics which like let's be honest nobody really knows what this is they explain it as like if you take a piece of fabric and you wrinkle it together it's allowing you to like jump from wrinkle to wrinkle Mm -hmm. of that piece of fabric rather than walk straight across and the idea is that it allows you to like break the space-time continuum does that sound right to you that does sound right. Like the words sound right. I still don't totally process it in my mind. But yes, it does sound like what they were what they were trying to tell me. You're buying into it as much the way that mm-hmm. I'm explaining it as you did when it was explained in the book. Mm-hmm. Okay, yes. that's all that I was trying to achieve. And I wonder, and I, to be honest, didn't do a lot of research on this, but I wonder if this is like a thing that is researched and talked about. It could be because for what episode? I had to do some research into physics for one of uh, our loaded literature episodes. I think it's, I don't think it'll quite be out when this is airing, but um, I was looking into time actually, but there's this whole theory where, you know, like if you can travel at the speed of light, you can break the time-space barrier, and then that's one way you can do time travel. So it's kind of similar. So this is kind of a thing. Hmm. I'm probably not explaining that very well because I barely understood it. Uh, I was an English major, so not my forte. Journalism Um, major over here, so I'm totally on board. (laughs) I was like, maybe that's what they're trying to say. But yeah, like I did do some reading into like basically time and space uh, nonsense. Okay. And so yeah, this is kind of it. Or then there's like um, black holes and stuff, which they think you know like could be. It would almost be kind of like the wrinkles. Um, could you could think of them as like black holes? There's a lot of theories about what black holes might be, but the one is like if you go through them, you might just end up somewhere else in time or somewhere else like in like space hmm. existence. Yeah, that's yeah. similar to testering, where it's like if you yeah. you kind of can end up anywhere. The other um, parallel that I was drawing was flu powder from Harry Potter. Yeah. Every time they were testering. So the irony of this whole 
testering thing with the Mrs. W's, Mrs. Who, Mrs. Watson, and Mrs. Witch, is that Meg's parents have apparently spent like their full professional careers researching this kind of time travel. And so the fact that Mrs. Watson happens to come to their door in the way that only happens in Kidlet is like this perfect coincidence. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mrs. Watson then testers with the children. And the experience, the way that Meg describes it, reminds me so much of Harry's first experience with flu powder, where he's like flying through space. He doesn't know where his arms and legs are. And it's like extremely overwhelming. And then I think he like slams into the ground and gets hurt. It's very similar to that. That I can't believe that didn't even occur to me when I was reading it. But yeah, that's exactly how I would describe it. I was like, it's just like flu powder, except more sciencey. Yeah, it's a, it's less. It's sort of like I was saying before. This is like the sci-fi, and mm-hmm. flu powder is the fantasy version. Yeah, of that. So the testering takes them over the course of the book to three different planets. The first one we can kind of skip because it's like just this kind of like beautiful utopia sort of thing. Yeah, I felt like there was something I was missing there because I was reading all that. And then I was like, none of this really meant much to me. So in my head, I was like, this is probably where all the Christian stuff is because I don't know anything about that. Yeah, I think so, too. I think it was just meant, first of all, it was this idea that, like, the kids were going to get a rest before they went into this much more daunting, like, traumatic Mm -hmm. time on Kamazoth, which is, like, where all the bad shit happens. Yeah. And I think the other idea is, like, Uriel, Uriel. I don't know how to pronounce it, but the first planet is called Uriel. And I think it's meant to sort of be this contrast, this foil Mm -hmm. to the darker planets that they're going to be visiting later on. And it's like a utopia. And we find out later that Calvin defines these three women as angels or messengers of God. And so I wonder if the idea is like maybe this is their home planet and that's where they spend most of their time. And and that's just not like said explicitly, but they're kind of showing that like this is how they live and there's this much brighter, happier your place that you can be yeah I think also that makes sense I'm pretty sure Uriel or Uriel however it's pronounced it's like the name of this is just a tidbit random tidbit I know of like some obscure angel Hmm. so I think I actually just heard that off supernatural so take that with a grain of salt you're full of facts Anya (laughs) just random ones I heard off the tv isn't it amazing like what sticks in your brain right I was like well that one it was like so A lot of angel names. So I do know a little bit of like Old Testament type stuff. Um, A lot of angel names end in L-E-L because like that's like one of the names of God or something. Mm -hmm. So like that's why you have like Gabriel, Michael. That makes a lot of sense. Mm Mm-hmm. For context, Madeline Langle was a Christian. Mm-hmm. She was a fairly controversial Christian, or from what I can see, oh, she cool. was a pretty liberal Christian. So mm-hmm. it's one of those things where, like, you can't win for losing. Like, the mm-hmm. more conservative Christians weren't a big fan of hers. And then people outside of the Christian community felt like she was a little mm-hmm. bit too Christian yeah. or a little bit too moralistic with her writing. So she kind of fell into this, like, weird space in the middle. I found a note somewhere that she wrote in her journal that, like, if she ever wrote a book that really clearly expressed her feelings about the universe and God and faith, like, this was that book. So oh. for somebody who spent so much of her life mm-hmm. navigating her own faith, like, this was meant mm-hmm. to be her expression of that which I think is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. It's also made it somewhat controversial too, of course, because yeah. there's this a lot of conversation, a lot of controversy about how much religion is in this book. I don't remember that part at all when I was a kid. 
Yeah, all of that definitely would have flown right over my head. Even as an adult, most of it flew right over my head. I'm not particularly religious myself. So like, and I was not raised in a religious household. So a lot of times when works reference that, unless it's like a really major story, like, um, I mean, even the apple, yeah. I'm probably not going to tune into it. And it really wasn't an issue for me personally. I think it's easy to read around it if it's not something yeah. that you are particularly fond of. I think as a parent, if you're reading this to a kid, like you could probably just kind of edit some of this stuff out. Yeah. I think this is a pretty big read aloud book in schools. And I would imagine in public schools, they have to be careful about some mm-hmm. of this because yeah. there's some pretty like clear Christian story here. Like they come right out and say like, Jesus is the one who's been fighting the dark thing the longest. Like that was really, I would say the most explicit yeah. Christian call out in the book. And that one actually took me out of the story briefly. I was like, whoa. Right. Here we are. I Jesus. Was, I was like, oh, you got me. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I was very Christian. Yeah. But, um, yeah. It was really just small things like that that popped out. For the most part, I agree. Like you could just, it'd be very easy to just edit that out. Yeah. And you would still retain the story. Yeah. There's some quotes, I think, from First Corinthians, which is in the New Testament. And then obviously at the end, as I was mentioning before, there's like a very direct um, mention of angels and the fact that the Mrs. W's are angels. But yeah. I think people look at angels in a lot of different ways. Like yeah. people with all kinds of spirituality mm-hmm. think about guardian angels and and kind of like your mm-hmm. spirit helpers or however you choose to think of them. I think <laughs> that part of it makes a lot of sense. And I would say even as somebody who is not particularly religious, mm-hmm. I, I buy into the angels thing and I buy into Mrs. Watson, Mrs. Who and Mrs. Witch as angels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And especially like you're saying, because like for me, yeah, like I understand that like there is like an Abrahamic religions, like angels, but I also kind of have the same thing where angels can also just be like, I don't know, like some kind of like celestial being or something, almost like a, like a unicorn. Like I'd also put them in that category. Totally. So yeah, for me, that wasn't something that really made me go, Oh, and there have been books that I've read, um, that have been, well, Chronicles of Narnia obviously is extremely Christian and that was so much more apparent to me throughout the whole book. This book, you could really isolate those moments in a different way. Something that I found that was really interesting while I was researching for this interview was an article in Insider about the way that the religious pieces were edited out of the story for the 2018 blockbuster movie, which I didn't realize like was not a huge success commercially. Um, Yeah, I mean, it was a big deal, obviously, because of Ava DuVernay as the director. And she made like huge strides for minority women and obviously has been like super out there and advocate for women stepping out in Hollywood. And I think that's amazing. And it looks like it was a beautiful movie. But from what I read, it was sort of a box office disappointment. Oh, yeah, I guess the marketing campaign was so huge. Like, yeah. I just figured it was very successful. Yeah, and I think it was critically acclaimed. And I think she's such a talented director that I'm sure there was a lot to love as, as a critic. But I don't think it did as well in the box office as they would have liked. But this article on Insider is called, A Wrinkle in Time Ditches the Book's Explicitly Christian References and the Movie Really Suffers Because of It. Oh. Interesting, right? Yeah. So the idea is that because they took out a lot of clear mention of angels in particular, like they're never called angels, even when they're talking about the kids fighting against the dark, there's, it's much less like personified. Like the dark isn't personified in the same way that it is in the book. So it's much more this like general light versus dark. And the author of this particular article thinks that it really like loses some of the structure because it's almost a little too vague about what's actually supposed to be going on in the story. Okay. 
Well, I feel like I really need to go see the movie. And I guess like that would depend on how you're interpreting the Christian themes. Because I think when you look at like some of the things like love and almost like, I don't know, because to me, a lot of the themes that could have been interpreted as Christian, I also felt were very secular. Mm -hmm. I guess what they could have just done is changed it to a philosophical kind of figuring out where you stand philosophically in the world instead of just like within like figuring out like where you feel Christianly. Mm, okay. But I feel like I need to go watch the movie now and see like, I don't know. I feel like just taking out like calling them angels to me wouldn't feel like that's enough. Here's a quote that might help. So it says, and with the removal of the misses being angels or messengers, their role is also muddled. Where did they come from? They simply say they heard a call in the universe, but how? Why? Have they done this before? What is their real form? These questions are skated over in the books, too, but Calvin's declaration that they are angels brings a much-needed piece of clarity. Without this section in the movie, their presence is compelling, but ultimately lacks explanation. They said the whole third act falls apart because it's just, like, not clear what the kids are supposed to be mm -hmm. fighting against. See, the thing about them saying, because Calvin doesn't declare them angels, is interesting, because when Calvin said that, I mean, like, obviously, I was aware that um, the author was Christian, but um, when he, he said that in the book, I kind of it interpreted it as that was Calvin's specific interpretation of who they were. Hmm. I didn't see that as the book stating that, like, oh, these are definitely 100% angels as you would define them by Christianity. So for me reading the book, none of those questions were answered even by Calvin's declaration. I... For me reading it, I never found out who they exactly what they were, what their true form was, who sent them, if they've done this before. So like to me, that feels like a non-issue. Hmm. I don't know how I feel about that. But I could also see the big complaint about the darkness being undefined as being a pretty major issue. Because they always say it in superhero movies, like a hero is only as good as their villain. Mm. So I'm like, if you're not defining the darkness well and what they're fighting against very well, I could definitely see then how that would affect the overall structure of the plot and stuff. I think especially for kids, it's like hard mm -hmm. when a kid doesn't know mm -hmm. who the bad guy is. Yes. We, we like a kids like a straightforward bad guy. Yeah. And it's like in this book, mm -hmm. it's like, is it the man with the red eyes? Is mm -hmm. it it sort of this like disembodied brain? Is it, I don't even know. There's, there's a lot of like potential villains. Is it the dark thing? But kids, I don't think are necessarily going to understand that the dark thing is like meant to be this like mm -hmm. villain. Cause it's not a being, mm -hmm. it's just like an idea. So I think, I mean, I probably wouldn't have thought about that myself, but I do think it's interesting that like that's being talked about as like a potential pitfall for the movie yeah that makes me really interesting because like yeah as a kid I don't think that would have been an issue for me I again I was very simple as a child you show me a man with red eyes and robots and it and I would be like yep those are the villains they're the bad guys and they're gonna get laser beams and attack them That's yeah exactly where my little kid mind would have gone the funny thing about it, I think, for 2018 readers and, and for listeners who haven't read this book in a while or who haven't seen the movie, it is like this sort of catch-all word for, again, this disembodied brain that's taken over Kamazots and like is basically running the entire population as robots and making them all like be brainwashed and like do exactly the same things. And I think it's kind of funny because it's it's printed in the book as it, as two, like a capital I, a capital T. Mm -hmm. And now in 2018, I look at that and I think IT, like information technology. I totally thought that too. I was like, was that like intentional? Like I, I was like, was she thinking that far ahead? Was IT a term then? Yeah. Was that a field in the sixties? I don't, I don't have I was, any idea. My thought was, I was like, she was super into science. So maybe it was a term, but like a really vague 
really obscure term that most people wouldn't have known back then. Yeah. So I was like, but then maybe I'm like, maybe I just know nothing about the sixties. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I, all that I know is like the Beatles and like great hair. Um, right. I, yeah, I agree. But I was like, is this supposed to be kind of like this commentary on the fact that someday like technology is going to totally take over our lives, which right. it has like good I job. Say, I was like, yeah. And especially if, you, okay, so we could take this even further. Like if you think of it as IT, which okay. just represents like technology completely. And then you think of the whole theme of like conformity and everyone becoming the same. And then you think about like how like people use Instagram and social media and we're all like, I was reading an article that was saying like regional dialects are probably going to die out because of media. Hmm. It's so easy for people to grow up hearing other dialects that like we're all just going to morph into having one dialect or like one accent. I don't totally believe this. It was just a think piece. Um, But yeah, like people in Brooklyn and people like in Southern California are eventually just going to sound exactly the same because we're all consuming the same media. But I was like, yeah. And then you have like Instagram because like, the Instagram makeup face. Everyone does the same makeup and contours to make their face have the same features. And even like when you scroll through Instagram, I feel like you see people taking the same pictures in the same way. Yeah. Not like I'm okay. Listen, I'm not trying to be too hipster about this, <laughs> but I was like, I definitely think you could do like um, like a book inspired by this and kind of go further into the technology and. Um, individuality and finding your individuality in this new land type thing. It was just my thought in 2018. <laughs> this just in like, did Madeline Langle predict Instagram? Right. Maybe. I was like, maybe she was a wizard. Maybe she or invented Angel. the internet. Like Al Gore, if you're listening, it wasn't you. Oh God. <laughs> One day I hope to think that highly of myself. <laughs> <laughs> I think somebody be- like people used to joke that he said he invented pants too. So Man. Yeah, he had a lot to say about himself. One day I hope to be as confident as Al Gore. I know, I know. So <laughs> I think like IT is like a weird concept yeah. for us. IT, it, again, like it's hard for me to think of it as it when I look at it on the page because mm-hmm. to me in 2018 it looks like IT. But it has taken over Kamazots. There's this idea of like the entire planet being the exact same, which like we were talking about at the beginning, there's kind of this parallel drawn to Meg's life in high school where mm-hmm. it's like she's seeing how bad it is when everybody's the same and how yeah. unhappy people are when they are made to live like robots and effectively mm-hmm. brainwashed. Like we've all been teens and we all know how hard it can be to feel different. And I think this is a really cool way to make kids understand this is what it actually looks like when people aren't free mm-hmm. to be themselves. Yeah, I agree. And I felt like especially for like the age range I feel like would have been reading to this because before reading it I had thought it was like a little little kid book Mm. but I feel like the prime age for this probably would have been anywhere from like 10 to 16 ish Mm -hmm. if I'm being generous so I feel like that's also though a big age where you're kind of you're starting to feel a lot of social pressures you know I feel like Around that age, I remember, like, there was a lot less creative outlets in school around that age. Like, there wasn't so many, like, fun projects and putting things together. And it was a lot more, like, write your essay, but here's a format of exactly how I want you to write an essay down to sentence structures within paragraphs and stuff. So I felt like this really would have been speaking to probably the intended audience. Yeah, it's an interesting way to, like, magnify the problems that you feel as a kid and look at them at, like, a macro level. Mm-hmm. I would have been super into that as a kid because I was always very concerned about not conforming. Mm. That was my goal was to not conform. So, 
Yeah, you would have probably as a kid then have like a super interesting take on this because I think like you're probably in the minority of a lot of kids. Like a lot of kids needed this maybe in a way that you didn't, but you would have yeah. appreciated it as like, I know exactly what she's trying to say here. Oh, oh, oh yes. Oh, yes. I would have been like, oh, all right, get it. All right. I'm already special. Probably would have been quite obnoxious. You're like the little boy who gets yelled at, who gets called in by his mom because he's bouncing his basketball at like yes. the wrong pace. That's you. I would have been like, oh, that kid's a rebel. I like him. <laughs> He's my best friend. <laughs> I was a little nerd. <laughs> yeah, well, same, same, if I'm being honest. Still am. Yeah, <laughs> same. I mean, we both have book podcasts, so. Yes. <laughs> the main conflict and sort of the, like, climax of the book happens when Charles Wallace is, like, hypnotized, brainwashed by it, mm-hmm. and they find Meg's dad, and Meg's dad, like, basically fucks everything up by tessering them out of Camazots without Charles Wallace. And we have to figure out a way to get Charles Wallace out of it mm-hmm. and back home. And there's this really interesting thing that happens because Meg essentially, like, loses her mind over her dad doing mm-hmm. this and really screwing screwing up the family as she sees it. Like, he's been gone for, I think, like, one mm-hmm. somewhere between one and three years is what I'm going to guess. Like, he's been gone for a while And she finally finds him, and now she feels like he's just abandoned Charles Wallace by being, like, too stupid to test her the way that the women can. Yeah. One thing that I thought was really interesting about this, too, was because there is certain, like, because you go from, and at least from my perspective, in the beginning of the book, wondering if the father actually did abandon the family. Mm. And then you find him trapped on Camazot, and then he does abandon the family again because I almost felt like this was almost like a good way for kids to reconcile like just those kind of feelings of abandonment like Mm -hmm. I remember when I was a kid and this would have spoken to me I had really big issues with uh my father who I lived with um he worked a lot and he like he was providing for the family and like as from my adult perspective now I understand why he wasn't around very much right but as a kid like it just I was very resentful about it that I didn't see my father very often you know, so it wasn't totally the same, but this kind of would have really um, resonated with me, I think, as a kid, because it's like, it does a good way of explaining, like, yes, your father kind of maybe in some ways you can call it abandonment. He's not around. He has a good reason, though, for that, you know, for me, I, I liked the way that was done. Yeah. And I again, like I said, I think it's an important lesson for kids to learn about the fallibility of adults. And yeah. it took me a long time even to realize that. And it's weird because I read so much as a kid, like mm-hmm. you would think that I would have picked up on this pattern that all of these authors are trying to demonstrate that adults aren't perfect, even if they're your mom or your dad. And there's a lot of room for people to mess up and kids mm-hmm. need to be able to like empathize a little bit and learn from mm-hmm. a parent's mistakes. But I feel like I have not, I have not recognized that in my own family members until the last like two or three years. Like it's a hard thing to come to grips with to be like, mm-hmm. your parents are not like we are, especially when you get to the point where you're an adult too, and, and yeah. to be like, we are all kind of adults, just like kind of trying to figure that out. And I didn't learn that when I was young. And so I always think it's interesting to read a story like this, where it's such a major part of the plot that mm-hmm. a kid is learning that their parents are not always going to get things right. I totally agree with everything you just said, because I'm having a similar thing where like a lot of lifestyle is changing. I'm really just becoming like a real adult. I have a full-time job living on my own for the first time, just real adult. Yeah. (laughs) And suddenly I'm like, oh, it totally makes sense to me now why adults aren't perfect. Because I don't feel all that different from when I was a kid. 
Yeah. And I, all of a sudden I'm being thrown in this new situation. And again, I agree with you because it's something that like I obviously I read a lot as a kid, too. And I read books that had this theme. And like if you had asked me that as like an academic type question, like, oh, do adults struggle? I've been like, oh, of course. But I didn't process it. And I almost like that's something that just has to come with experience, you know? Yeah, I, th- I think so because I think I, at least I was raised with such like a traditional <laughs> like respect your elders kind of vibe. <laughs> And obviously I respect my parents regardless of the mistakes they made as, as I would hope yeah. they would respect me regardless of the mistakes that I make. But mm-hmm. I think when you grow up with that mindset, even into your early adulthood, it's very easy to allow yourself to like never question anything that the, yeah. that your like grown up family members do. And it takes time to reconcile that. Like mm-hmm. it's really hard. And so now when I read books and I read books like this and I see that that's like such a clear theme. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that's something that you just don't you're not going to pick up on as a kid. Like you're going to read you're not going to read between those lines. You're not going to understand what the author's trying to say. It's something that's like a nod for grown-ups more than for kids. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's something that like as a kid it's not something that directly relates to the kid as much as like cuz that's not something I would have thought about as a big issue in my life as a kid. Like the idea about like conforming or not conforming, where is my, you know, where is my in all of this, those are things that would have been really pressing on my mind. Whereas like, how do adults feel would have been like, Oh, no, I'll never be one of them. I don't care about that. Yeah. So I could totally see most kids just like that going straight over their head. Yeah. And she's really pissed at him. Honestly, I was not loving Meg during this part of the book. And I was for me, the jury was still out on this latest reread on like whether or not Mm -hmm. I I was a Meg fan. And she kind of lost me at this part Mm because she was just like, such an asshole about it like like your dad has been basically like locked up in this weird like space jail for two years and he hasn't exactly had time to be like practicing his space travel skills sorry about that um like he's not going to be able to save you and your like new boyfriend and your little brother all at the same time and she's throwing like a tantrum about it and it's really not fair yeah I guess for me I was, I did end up liking Meg quite a bit. Um, She felt like just in a very original character, like one that I hadn't read before. Because one thing I've noticed reading books for younger readers and even older readers is that a lot of characters kind of feel samey. But anyways, regarding this scene specifically, I was interpreting, again, like I felt like what this represented was the feelings of abandonment children can have when adult things happen to adults. So for me, this almost felt like Because obviously within the plot, the father was trapped in a, yeah, you're right, a space prison. There's nothing he could have done. Like his life sucks. Yeah. I was like, but when you think about it, maybe as like a symbolic thing for just like adults not being there, then I Mm. felt like this was probably resentment that's been building for years and years and years. Yeah. You know, so that, when I interpret it from that lens, I was more forgiving on her. But yeah, if you just look at it baseline plot, she's way, (laughs) she's going way crazy about it. Yeah, she's going nuts, and then, like, they go to this other planet, mm-hmm. and there's these beasts, which I know we don't have a ton of time to talk about them, but I just have to say that there's nobody that can convince me that these beasts are anything but, like, really fucking creepy. Uh, yeah, I was very uncomfortable. I was like, because I felt like you weren't supposed to interpret them as evil. But they were, like, dressing her and, like, bathing her, and it really freaked me out. I did not like that at all all I was like no this is awful do you think that would have made the cut on this book if it were written today or is it like too like 
curvy, weird. I don't, I don't think that would have gotten in this time. I agree. I think it definitely would have been interpreted as kind of pervy. Yeah, it was very weird. It's like these faceless, I picture them as like giant gray thumbs. They had tentacles, right? Yeah, they're really creepy. So she basically like gets swept up by these beasts who she Mm -hmm. is like obsessed with. And I wonder if there's supposed to be some God symbolism there. Like she just implicitly trusts them and she like knows that they can help Mm -hmm. her. That's what I was thinking. But I'm like, look, Madeline Langle, pick a different creature. Yeah, I was thinking that too. I was like, is there some like religious imagery I am missing right. here? Because this is just horrific. Right. Like I understand what she was going for, but like yeah. there had to have been a different way to embody this like spirit yeah. that she was feeling. For me, it was the tentacles. I was like, tentacles are never friendly. No. Don't ever write anything with tentacles unless you want it to be evil. Yeah, totally. And gray. I was like, no one likes gray. Yeah. So she like basically is like nursed back to health by these weird beasts and she finds it in her heart to kind of apologize to her dad but her apology was kind of weird it was more like I apologize for like thinking that it was your job to fix everything and like true but also like sorry for being an asshole I felt like it was kind of yeah I was like the actual apology wasn't good but I felt like the message that was being conveyed by the apology was good because I felt like it was how Madeline felt like um children should be apologizing to their parents because like we should, it was almost like um, I apologize for seeing you as a parent before seeing you as a person, hmm. you know? So that's, again, I was like, I kind of went a little easier on Meg during that scene. I, I get it. I loved Meg when I was a kid. There have been times when I've read this book and I loved her for whatever reason. This reread, I was just like not as fond. Yeah. All right. It happens. I'm not really sure why. I honestly was a little bit more sympathetic and you're going to laugh when I tell you why I became more sympathetic toward her. Okay. I read the, so I always, before we record, I do like a deep dive into like think pieces and stuff, Mm -hmm. but I also read the Wikipedia just to make sure like I'm caught up on Mm -hmm. like basics and and all that good stuff. And the Wikipedia entry about this book and like the little summary about Meg made me empathize with her a little bit more. And it was just one line of the entry and it was just like Meg's family understands that she is emotionally immature. And I was like, oh, okay. Like, that makes sense to me. I guess I picked yeah. up on so many other parts of her, like, struggles from the beginning of the book. Like, mm-hmm. she was bullied and she struggled in school and and things like that. Like, I, I guess I wasn't maybe cutting her slack for the emotional immaturity piece of it. But then when I stepped back and, and I thought about that, I was like, oh, yeah, she just, like, doesn't know how mm-hmm. to relate to other people her age or even older. Yeah, that stuck out to me was that she was just kind of immature yeah which also made it a little bit weird though that she and calvin had a thing because like if she's already immature and then also a couple years younger than him yeah i don't know about that yeah like big man on campus calvin who i do mm-hmm. love like my husband I, he and i went to high school together but we like were not friends because he was really cool and i was really not cool uh-huh. at least in my head like in, in your head yeah. you're always less cool than you think you are but he was like objectively cool like really great Mm -hmm. athlete also in honors classes had tons of friends and I was kind of like doing my own thing on the school paper and like Mm -hmm. student government and all that good stuff and I loved reading this book as an adult because Calvin was like the cool guy who actually had so much going on in his life and Mm -hmm. like you find out that Calvin like is having you know some things that he like wants to talk about and he doesn't have anybody to talk to and like Meg provides that for him in a way that he never had. And I was like, that just like warmed my heart a little bit. Yeah. Calvin was an interesting one because I feel like he's a character that nowadays would have been his character type would have be, 
would have been presented kind of negatively. Yeah. I feel like we get like like a lot of negative cool guy jock type characters. Although I feel like that's kind of turning around a bit again. I think so. But um, yeah, I liked him as a character a lot too. He was good. He was a good balance for Meg, I think. Yeah. I agree. So you did not read this as a kid, so I can't ask you my typical question of whether or not this book uh, held up for you or did not hold up. So I'm going to answer that question, and I'm going to ask you a twist on that question. Okay. For me, I would say that this reread did not make me love A Wrinkle in Time all the more. I would say it doesn't quite hold up for me. Like I said, I just don't think that – I think that the sci-fi for me as an adult is just – it got in the way. Mm-hmm. And I loved like the first two chapters where they were at home, but I just I couldn't get into it to the extent that I did when I was a kid. I think it's still beautifully written, and I totally understand why it's a classic. Um, I mean, it has a Newberry for God's sake, so like, who am I to say? But um, I would say personally, it just like wasn't the experience mm-hmm. as an adult that it was as a kid, and that's fine. So for you, was this more or less than you expected it to be? Like, how did it measure up to your expectations for the book? For me, it was actually more. I like ended up liking it more than I thought I would. And then, because like I said, going into it, the main thing I knew was just Christian themes, which I was like, I don't know. I really like the whole whimsical sci-fi that it presented. Um, I like the characters a lot. Yeah, and like I said, it was very well written. She's a very talented writer. So for me, I think it was better than I expected it to be. I'm so glad. Yeah. That like so it's a win for SSR this week. That's great. Yes. Yes. I got yes, I got introduced to something new that I like. I love it. Excellent. <laughs> I don't I don't like to ruin things for people and I don't like when I make people read books for the first time that end up being disappointments. No, this was definitely a victory. Okay, phew. <laughs> Uh, so moving past A Wrinkle in Time, I always love to, at the end of the show, give our listeners some suggestions to add to their TBR lists. So is there anything that you're reading now or that you have read recently that you would want to recommend to the SSR fam? Well, um, I read this probably actually a couple months ago, but I think it would pair pretty well. Um, it's uh, Castle in the Sky. It's what Hell's Moving Castle was based off of, the Miyazaki movie, if anyone see it. I think it's written for a slightly older audience. Mm-hmm. It has a very whimsical theme to it, kind of more fairy tale than science fiction, but it has a lot of like dimension hopping type stuff. Um, so I think it would actually pair really well with this. Oh. So I would highly recommend that. Castle in the Sky. Perfect. Well, I will include a link to that in the show notes as well as a link to A Wrinkle in Time for those who want to buy. And of course, I will include a link to Loaded Literature, which is an Thank awesome you. book podcast, <laughs> um, books and booze combo, like can we can we do better than that? I don't think so. <laughs> Definitely not. Please listen to our drunken ramblings. What is your favorite alcoholic beverage to drink while you read, generally speaking? Honestly, it's very basic, but I just love a good glass of wine, preferably like a deep red wine okay. when I'm reading. It just I never get tired of red wines. So that's what I have to go with. And it's so pleasant, it's so soothing, tastes so good. So yes. Well, we're getting into fall, so I feel like it's perfect, like, red wine time. Time to put away the rosé, which breaks my heart because I'm a rosé girl, but time to, like, dig out the red wines and snuggle up with a book. Yes, it's a good time. Well, I really appreciate you joining me today. I know you had, so shout out to Anya for having her first, like, full week of work last week. 
Speaking thank of you. like full on adulting, <laughs> thank you so much for making time to read this book in the midst of everything else you're doing right now and for recording with me. It was so great to talk with you. And I again, I want to encourage everybody to check out Loaded Literature because it's a really great show. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hello SSRpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.